I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, May 24th, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, put on your memory cap to go moonwalking with Einstein. And if that memory cap doesn't fit, don't take it personally. If someone says you have a big head, we'll hear about the evolution of mammals and why our brains are so large. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Your favorite animal on the planet might be a charismatic panda bear or an endangered Bengali tiger, but a committee of scientists from around the world have chosen a two-inch-long, large-toothed leech among their favorite species found last year. The leech earned the name Tyrannobdella rex, which means tyrant leech king. The slimy critter was discovered in Peru, attached to the nasal mucous membrane of a human. To draw public attention to the importance of biodiversity, a group of taxonomists yesterday announced their annual top ten list of new species discovered in 2010. Among the top picks were a six-foot-long fruit-eating lizard, a jumping cockroach, as if crawling ones weren't bad enough, and an orb-weaving spider that builds webs large enough to span rivers and lakes. Another species was found in the Upper Rogue River in Oregon, a gilled mushroom that fruits underwater. The list was compiled by the International Institute for Species Exploration at Arizona State University and a committee of international taxonomists. Committee members developed their own criteria, such as surprising attributes, importance for human use, or importance in understanding the planet's biodiversity. Quentin Wheeler, an entomologist who directs the institute, estimates that another 10 million species remain to be identified. So don't give up looking in your backyard and beyond. A common South Asian spice, called curcumin, may help ease the effects of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, according to a recent study. Curcumin is derived from turmeric and is the main ingredient in most curry powders. Two key factors are linked to neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. First, DNA in the brain is damaged by reactive oxygen species, a byproduct of the cell's natural metabolism process. Second, the affected regions of the brain have unusually high levels of iron and copper. Scientists at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston recently discovered a link between these two factors. The effect is a double whammy, according to Moralidar Hedge, a postdoctoral fellow and the lead author of a new study, which was published in the most recent issue of the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The excess of iron and copper produces more reactive oxygen species, which attack DNA, causing cell damage. DNA has enzymes to repair the damage these oxygen molecules cause, but excessive amounts of iron and copper inhibit the repair enzymes from doing their job. It is this traffic jam of damage and disrepair that is thought to lead to neurodegenerative disorders. One solution is to protect the enzymes from the iron and copper. The scientists found that curcumin may be a possible solution. For KGNU, this is Brianna Draxler. As many of you know, we're in the middle of our contest to find the new theme song for How on Earth. We're inviting musicians to submit sample entries, which will be judged by the How on Earth team with the assistance of an expert panel. The contest rules and the entries are available on our webpage at howonearthradio.org contest. Please submit entries within the next month. Today, we'll be using two entries as musical interludes between our feature stories, 
such as this one by local musician John Stubbs. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Joel Parker. As we age, it's common to find that our memory isn't quite as sharp as it used to be. We get forgetful, having uh, what we often call senior moments. But then again, maybe that's not so bad. As Nietzsche said, the advantage of a bad memory is that one enjoys several times the same good things for the first time. How the memory works, or fails to work is just one of the topics discussed by Joshua Four in his new book, Moonwalking with Einstein. As a little memory exercise, some of you may recall that back in March during the pledge drive, we played a couple excerpts of an interview I had with Joshua Four about his book, including interesting case studies of memory and his personal experiences about training to improve his memory. The interview proved to be very popular, and we got a lot of response of new pledges who cleaned us out of our copies of the book as premiums for their pledges. Well, as a thank you, we promised to play more of the interview, and luckily, we remembered. So here is more from that interview. We start off with Joshua talking about an unusual mental competition that was the motivation for his writing this book and the origin of its title. There is this strange contest held every spring in New York City called the United States Memory Championship. And I had gone there to cover it as a science journalist, I guess thinking it was going to be like the Super Bowl of savants or something, uh, that it would be these guys with photographic memories, freaks of nature, because I'd read that they were able to memorize entire poems and hundreds of random numbers. It right. turns out that that wasn't the case. These individuals had actually trained themselves to perform these rather incredible mental gymnastics. And I ended up spending the better part of the next year training my own memory to do this and coming back and competing sort of as an exercise in participatory journalism the following year. Uh, and that was when I used that mnemonic of moonwalking with Einstein to uh, remember a deck of playing cards in that contest. So that's what got you interested in the subject of memorizing and memory and things like that in the first place. Yeah, you know, I went to this contest. I saw these individuals who claimed to have average memories reeling off strings of 300 random digits and all sorts of stuff. It was just mind-blowing. And I realized I didn't know the first thing about how my memory worked. I couldn't comprehend what they were doing. And that sort of set me on this journey, not only to train my memory, but to investigate it and try and figure out a little bit about how it works and, and, and why it sometimes doesn't work. You said these aren't people who are necessarily magically, naturally gifted or have photographic memories and can just see a number or a book page that they saw, but they actually train, they exercise their brain muscles. And I was totally skeptical when these individuals told me that. A few years back, some rather well-known psychologists in London brought a bunch of these memory champions into the lab, essentially wanted to suss out whether they were being honest when they said they had just average memories, put them in uh, an MRI, and found that actually structurally, anatomically, there was nothing unusual about their brains. General cognitive tests, they were pretty much average. But when they did fMRI scans, uh, while they were actually memorizing random numbers and all sorts of other stuff, they found that these mental athletes were engaging different regions of the brain uh, from control subjects when they were memorizing. Namely, they were activating regions of the brain associated with spatial memory, which is 
fascinating. Why would, you know, why would they be doing that? Sure, spatial, right. It turns out they were using a set of techniques that were invented 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece. Those techniques involve essentially transforming things that we are not very good at remembering, like random numbers, into vivid visual images that are then placed in a building, which is called a memory palace. Mm -hmm. And so that's what these mental athletes, memory champions were doing. They were walking around this imagined architecture in their brains while they were memorizing. The house of memory. Yeah, a house of memory, exactly. Basically, it was just a matter of they were training to do a certain skill. I noted in your book that they spoke disparagingly of the concept of photographic memory. Photographic memory appears to be a myth. There is one case in the literature, a woman with a photographic memory, paper published in 1970 in, in the journal Nature, which is the most, uh, reputable, one of the most reputable journal journals in the world, and has never been replicated. They actually, scientists, after, after that paper came out, put out calls in, in newspapers all over the world for, uh, if you have a photographic memory, call us. And when they brought in those individuals into the lab and tested them, none of them could perform this nifty trick of, of essentially taking a picture with their mind's eye and recalling it with perfect fidelity. Do you remember everything that you uh, had to remember for the competition, or have you forgotten that? Oh, my gosh. Uh, forgotten. Absolutely. I mean, one of the funny things about these competitions is your goal is merely to remember this information long enough to recall it in the contest, and then you actually willfully want to forget it. And the reason is, in one of these contests, you're storing your memories in one of these mental memory palaces. And unless you're one of the best guys in the world, you don't have enough memory palaces actually last you from competition to competition. You have to reuse them. And reusing them means essentially wiping them of the memories that you formed in the previous competition. So there are, they have strategies, mental athletes have strategies to walk through their memory palaces erasing memories, which I think is kind of a beautiful, strange idea. It's kind of like uh, the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind yeah, erasing exactly. your own memories. Yeah, there's actually, I think, just one figure in your book, a graph of what you call the curve of forgetting, which is a little different than willful forgetting. What is that exactly? Well, that's the experience we all know, which is that when you learn something, you start forgetting it almost the second after you learn it. And that forgetting follows a rather natural curve, uh, where if you retest somebody on something they've learned an hour later, two hours later, a day later, a week later, you'll see that they remember less and less. That's what we're all up against. These mental athletes have one strategy for combating the, the curve of forgetting, uh, which is that they use these memory techniques. Exercising your memory, still keeping that up, it even has larger political or cultural impacts in how the people think and consider information that they take in. You know, I wouldn't want to overstate the case, but um, <laughs> I do think that there is a cost to our uh, essentially neglecting this most essential human capacity. Have you found that there's any correlation between people with, who are good at memorizing things and what you would consider as people who are smart? Is there kind of a relationship between people remembering a lot of facts and being able to process and analyze those facts? I actually think there is. I think there's a feedback process there. When we remember stuff, we're doing it because or we find things memorable because we're able to integrate them into 
a network of other things that we know. I was in China not long ago, walking around Shanghai. I realized I, first of all, had gone through high school not learning the first thing about China. I'm sure that would be different if I went to high school today. And I, it wasn't just I didn't know stuff. I couldn't learn new things about China because I didn't have the basic facts to fasten other facts to. So it, it gives you a it's framework. It's hard to be a curious person walking around China because I, I didn't know what the difference between uh, Qing and Ming was, you know, which dynasty was when. You need that if you're going to move through the world appreciating and, 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 and learning. So it gives you something to latch information onto and find relationships. Right, and it's like a spider web that grows as it captures more information, right? The more we know, the easier it is to know more. I think that's part of the reason that so many of the people that I regard as being really intelligent people have wonderful memories. It's not a, always a perfect correlation. There's certainly forgetful old professors who are brilliant and I definitely spent time with savants who remembered a ton but couldn't process it in any way. But the general principle that I think our memories are related to some level of intelligence, I, I, I buy into that. How does memory affect what you might call our sense of self? I would answer that question, I think, with a story. I had a chance in the process of researching this book to spend time with an individual named E.P., how he's known in the literature, subsequently passed away, unfortunately. But E.P. had what was probably the worst memory in the world. Uh, he was an amnesic whose brain was struck by a freakish virus that essentially cored it like an apple, destroyed his hippocampal regions, which are the part of the brain that transform our perceptions into long-term memories. Without a memory, he had forgotten everything that had happened essentially since 1950 and was unable to form new memories. Without a memory, he had become this kind of hollow self. A person needs to exist in the dimension of time to be a person. He couldn't provide even the most basic psychological sustenance to his friends and family because he couldn't remember anything more recent than his most recent thought. He had no memories uh, to be able to create a timeline. That's right. That's right. And spending time with him, I, I really appreciated the extent to which our memories make us who we are. I mean, you could have a conversation with E.P., and it would take maybe a few minutes before you realized that there was something deeply wrong. But once you realized it, it was, it was profound. This was someone who was operating in a completely different kind of existence. What about the flip side? What about false memories? You know, we all have these times when we're absolutely sure we remember something that actually didn't happen. How is that related? One of the things that happens to our memories over time is that they can change that they can mutate. And that's actually something I gather happens at the neurological level. As we recall memories, they have a, a habit of mutating, of shifting, of changing. It's strange, but apparently true. What kind of professions do you find people with good memory tend to do well in, or have you even looked at that? It's not something I looked at, but I'll tell you, one of the people I write about in the book is a guy named S, who was studied in the 1930s by the psychologist A.R. Luria. And S. was supposedly able to remember almost everything. He was and, the one who, his memory palace instead was a street that he walked down in Moscow, oh, I believe. he had many, right? many, many memory palaces. He, there were hundreds of them, thousands of them, no doubt. But he did seem to use a technique like the memory palace. And S. was essentially non-functional. He remembered too much. And he couldn't make that distinction between the things that were trivial not worth remembering, and the things that were worth remembering. 
And as a result, he, he really couldn't hold down a job. He couldn't make sense of most things that he, he read. Certainly anything that was abstract, like poetry, just was really difficult for him. And ultimately, he sort of made, a, made his living as a, a memory sideshow act. That was kind of all he could do. Are there tricks to being able to forget things? You know, there are certainly cases where people have experiences they would like to forget. So S, supposedly, uh, in the rather lyrical recounting of his story by Gloria, which I write about in Moonwalking with Einstein, S realized that he had to learn an art of forgetting. The art of memory came naturally to him. It was the art of forgetting that he needed to learn. And he tried. He would try burning up in his mind's eye these images of things that he wanted to forget and that didn't work because he still saw the images floating above the embers in his mind's eye. Eventually, the realization he had was that all he had to do to forget was tell himself, let himself feel that he didn't need to remember these things. And once he told himself that, he could start forgetting. It's beautiful, it's poignant, but uh, I don't know how applicable it is to the rest of us who don't walk around remembering everything. It is nice to think about it that way. You're right, it's poignant. He basically gave himself permission to forget. Yeah, yeah. Now that you're done with the competition and have written this book, do you find that you try to remember things still, or do you take notes and uh, rely on your outsourced technology to keep track of your schedule like the rest of us? I do. I, I confess to typing phone numbers into my cell phone and and writing down my schedule. But I will say that I do try and keep in shape a little bit, even though I, I hung up my cleats several years ago. I will uh, remember my shopping list when I go to the grocery store just to make sure that I'm keeping my skills up. So you don't go to the memory gym every day, but you may go out for a short run. <laughs> exactly. And I, I'm developing a mnemonic pot belly, you might say. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. The full interview with Joshua Four is available online at our website later today at howonearthradio.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. Improving your memory may be expanding your mind, but what about literally, physically expanding your brain? In particular, why are our brains so large? John Stewart from the BBC's Science in Action talked with Tim Rowe, a paleontologist from the University of Texas in Austin. They discussed how our brains evolved and how scientists can study brains from long-dead ancient mammals. Mammals have very, very big brains. They have the biggest brains of any organisms at all. And there's been a lot of interest in how the brain got so big and why did it get so big? What kind of information was this huge brain processing? There's also been a lot of interest in what was the brain and the ancestral species of mammal like? Its descendants, elephants, whales, bats, and so forth, diversified so enormously, and their brains have diversified so enormously. Many of us have wanted to know what that starting point was. Well, new clues are revealed in this week's journal Science by Professor Tim Rowe, a paleontologist at the University of Texas in Austin in the U.S. As well here, he's been waiting to have a look inside the skulls of some of the earliest mammals for a very long time. We do have a few rare skulls and skeletons. They're very, very precious. They're very tiny, too. These little animals would be among the smallest mammals alive today. 
looks like a shrew or looks like a small rodent, and I think it would have been very recognizable to us even today. With the few fossil skulls that we do have, they're both very interesting and very very frustrating, or, or have been frustrating, in the sense that you can hold them in your hand and look at them and know that inside their heads is the answer to the question of what was their brain like, how did they behave. But in order to get there, until recently, you had to break them open to prepare the rock out of their endocranial cavities where the brain lies. And the curators of the museums of the world uniformly have said, no, you may not break our fossils. Sit on your hands and be patient and wait for some non-destructive technology to emerge. And that's what happened with the computed tomography. Now, this is the, the sort of thing that we see used in hospitals these days to scan the brains and other body parts of people. Yes, uh, computed tomography or CT uses x-rays to non-destructively see inside of solid objects. And here at Texas, we were interested in applying this instrument to objects of natural history. And wonderful fossils have come to our lab to be scanned so that we can finally get inside the skulls of some of these uh, most precious of specimens. You have this amazing new technology to allow you to see inside them, but we're talking about fossils. You know, these are the, the bony remains that have turned to stone. So how much can you really tell about the brain from them? In living mammals today, we know that the brain fully fills the endocranial cavity. The growing brain embosses its outer surface against the inner surfaces of the bones. And so if one can scan a fossil or physically break it open and prepare the rock out of it, you can see the external surfaces of the brain reflected in the inner surfaces of the bones of the skull. And you're reporting in particular about the link between the evolution of brains, which really make us what we are, I suppose, and the sense of smell. How are those two linked then? Our brains process a bunch of different kinds of information. We have olfactory, a sense of smell, we have taste, we have vision, we have hearing. And the evolution of the brain and information processing systems have been a trade-off. And we've often wanted to know, what's the story behind mammals? Mammals also have very, very big brains. They have the biggest brains of any organisms at, at all. And there's been a lot of interest in how the brain got so big and why did it get so big? What kind of information was this huge brain processing? And... With the CAT scanner and with these rare fossils, we were able to begin to answer that question. So I suppose if you're a small early mammal, then the sense of smell is particularly important to you, so that's going to be the one that you devote what <clears throat> brain space you have to. As it turns out, uh, yes, the sense of olfaction uh, proves to be the dominant driver of brain expansion early on in mammal history. We saw several influences that we think were involved in, in driving this expansion of the brain. Olfaction is far and away the single largest driving factor because the olfactory bulbs are huge and the places where they project to in the brain for further processing are also huge. Professor Tim Rowe on brain development. Thanks to John Stewart from the BBC's Science in Action for that report. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer is Joel Parker. Our engineer is Ted Burnham. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music by John Stubbs. And speaking of music, if you're a musician, don't forget about our ongoing contest for a new theme song. Check out the contest rules now 
at howonearthradio.org slash contest. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearth.org and click on the button to subscribe to our podcast. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. Thank you.